0: Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only podcast where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Blair Henley, a host, writer, and reporter who works for a variety of tennis events around the world. A lifelong tennis player, Blair's journalistic instincts were also evident at an early age.
1: If I didn't play tennis, I think I would have been in every play or drama that I could have been in in school. I went to a great performing arts high school and never got to take advantage because I was always playing tennis, Uh, but loved, loved that sort of thing. My mom has pictures of me as a kid. I had a karaoke machine and I would interview my friends on it.
0: While her work does include straightforward tennis topics, Blair has also poured herself into creative content for events to use on social media.
1: For all the ridiculous things you've heard me ask, there are hundreds of ridiculous things that have not made the cut. But I, I, you just have to sort of throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And sticking can mean getting approved by the tournament, by the tours, getting a yes from the player. There are so many things that have to line up to actually, once you have an idea, to actually execute said idea.
0: Building trust is necessary to go there with players on all the topics that Blair sometimes likes to ask players about. And she acknowledges that's a process that is always ongoing.
1: With some players, my relationship with them is not cumulative. And it's very easy to go into a a player relationship thinking we had such a great sit down two weeks ago in whatever tournament. And you think because this is how it works in real life that the next time you see them, you're going to sort of build on that. And there are certain players where that is not the case It is literally Every day is a new mood, a new day. Uh, You have to have maybe a different approach.
0: Now, while you listen, make sure you check out the show notes for this episode on credentialsonly.com because I link to a number of examples of interviews and pieces that Blair has been a part of. And please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you are accessing your podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Blair Henley on Credentials Only. Blair, thank you so much for joining me on Credentials Only. You know, tennis is often described as the sport of a lifetime because people can play forever and ever and ever. You're kind of taking it to the other extreme though. It, it, what's your background in the sport?
1: I was was lucky enough to uh, you know, come home from the hospital and I'm fairly sure I was in a tennis shop with, within a couple of weeks of, of being born courtside. Um, my dad is a tennis pro and still is to this day, still absolutely loves teaching people the sport of tennis, but I was very fortunate to be able to spend as much time as I wanted on a tennis court growing up. Uh, I certainly didn't Wasn't pressured to play, but thankfully, put a racket in my hand. I'm Not sure I was the most uh, talented, but I sure loved it. And that is still true to this day.
0: Okay, so as you're growing up around the sport, who are some of the pros you looked up to?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. You know, I always loved, I mean, I was a little bit older at the time, but I loved Amanda Kutzer from South Africa. Uh, So she was small, uh, she, was a grinder on the court. Kind of like a a maybe slightly less talented, all respect to Amanda. Kim Kleister is just super athletic on the court. And uh, I always enjoyed watching her. And I, if I mean, Pete, you've seen me interviewing tennis players. I am, I too am short in stature. (laughs) So I could relate on that front. Loved watching her. Love watching you know, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras. I mean, Pete Sampras throwing up at the back of the court against Alex Kurecha in, what was it, 96, uh, somewhere in there. I mean, it's like seared into my, my memory. So, I mean, probably a lot of the, the players that, that people looked up to, plus, plus some Amanda Kutzer, who was one of my faves.
0: You're around the court all the time. At what point does it start to become a serious passion and, and how far did you take your game?
1: I was never opposed to playing other sports. My parents were never opposed to me playing other sports, but I never wanted to play other sports. And so for me, I was I was pretty serious from a young age, uh, but that said, I, you know, I, I grew up in South Florida at least for part of the year and, you know, there are tons of academies down there and we definitely pondered like do i want to go that route and and just decided sort of to take a more well-rounded approach you know did i think i was going to be a pro at age nine i did not and so so maybe looked at it as okay well maybe college tennis will be the calling education was was very important as well but in terms of wanting to be good at tennis that i knew from a very young
0: age You did take the college tennis route. Where did you wind up playing and what was that career like for you there?
1: Went to Rice University, had never heard of it, didn't know where it was before the coach called me, uh, which is embarrassing to tell that story now, but I was like, is it warm there? And he's like, I mean, yeah, it's Houston. Have you, do you not know what Houston is like? I said, I do not. And of course now Pete, you and I know well what Houston is like in the summer slash the fall slash the spring. <laughs> it is blazing there. Uh, I, I've never sweat more and that's coming from someone who grew up in South Florida. So I uh, went on my recruiting trip there and absolutely loved all aspects of it, the balance of the academics and the tennis. And I got a chance to, to play division one tennis and it was awesome.
0: did pretty well. Let's go ahead and, you know, at least mention two important accolades. Um, oh, I don't know, Conference USA Player of the Year, but also an academic All-American. And you mentioned how important the academics were to you. And you had to have balance because on top of playing as a Division One athlete, you were double majoring in economics and management. So what came next after college?
1: Yeah, you know, looking back, Pete, I've thought a lot about this lately. Uh, It's funny. I've I've gotten this question recently a a number of times, so I've put some some thought into it. I didn't know going into college really what I wanted to do with my life, and to be honest, I didn't know coming out. I was hoping that you know my passion would just hit me over the head, uh, and it it turns out I was I was kind of living my passion on a daily basis. But in my mind, I was thinking, you know, I'm probably not going to turn pro. I I considered it. I, I actually considered hiring a coach and giving it a go on the ITF circuit because that's what I did during my summers in college. Uh, but just for a number of reasons, I you know, had this whole pros and cons list, decided that was not, not the route for me. But I think I took sort of a myopic view of my pursuits in life. When I was in school, I wanted to be the best I could be in school. And when I was on the tennis court, I wanted to be the best I could be on the tennis court. And a lot of the things I did outside of those things were to make myself better at those things instead of sort of looking at like hey you're gonna have to be good at something that pays you money one day (laughs) and and so i just hadn't really zoned in on on what i wanted to do and so i i got a job i taught tennis after i graduated and got a job doing pharmaceutical sales, quickly decided that was that was not what I wanted to do with my life and then got a job at a tennis club where it was sort of a brand new club and learned a lot about business along the way.
0: And then you had the nomadic period, I think maybe the best way to describe it, but you went without a permanent address for a while.
1: What yes. was going on
0: in that stage of your life?
1: Yes, got married when I was 25. Um, my husband was playing, baseball at the time, he was in the minor leagues. I think we moved 16 times in three years. All of my belongings could fit in the car, which I'm not gonna lie, is a very freeing uh, prospect to know that you could pick up and leave at a moment's notice. And we did a couple of times. Uh, but I will say it was during that time, I, I look back and I'm so thankful for it. A, just because it was kind of a simple time in life. You know there's (laughs) you're not getting a lot of the the comforts in life on a minor league baseball player's salary but during that time i a was able to teach tennis at just about every city we landed in um female tennis pros are harder to come by and i mean a couple of times they didn't even ask me to see my resume they're they're like what you want to teach tennis like yes you're hired uh it's just they're just harder it's harder to find female pros so i was super thankful for that you know i could be involved in a community, a tennis community, really wherever we went. But because I didn't have a traditional job, that's when I got started doing some tennis writing. I always loved to write, uh, but it was like, well, I wasn't a journalism major. I'm not, I don't even know how to get started in that world. Uh, And time on my hands fixed that problem for me. (laughs) I was able to get my
0: feet wet. And yet you broke out, I think probably pretty broadly outside of tennis pretty quickly. With a recurring series for ESPNW, how in the world did that come about, and what was your angle for those pieces?
1: The that came about by me asking every person I knew who might know someone to pass along. I, I there was a story that I wanted to write, and it was really about you know what that life was like, sort of you know, being an athlete, going to a school that that you know where. On paper, maybe I should have been in the corporate world somewhere. And instead, I was, as you said, having this nomadic period. And uh, <laughs> I, I finally made it to, to an editor at ESPN. And ESPNW was just starting up at the time. And they said, this this would work for us. And uh, it's it resonated at the time, which I, I definitely did not expect. But I think there were a lot of people, a lot of women in my position, having been married to a professional athlete.
0: You then settle into Houston and uh, in that time, you kind of settle into a couple of roles more on that tennis journalist side while still doing some instruction as well. So what was it though that was drawing you to the journalistic piece and what were you able to do to kind of scratch that itch?
1: It was interesting for me because I, because my husband's job slash life was so uncertain at the time, i it was hard for me to say okay now i'm going to pick a career because i didn't know how long i didn't know what his career was going to be he had to go back to rice and finish school i didn't know if we were going to be moving again and so i it was a, a connection somebody that i knew in houston who worked in tennis had a tennis website and said hey we'd love for you to write for us sort of head up head up the site and i was doing some um some copywriting work at the same time. And it was through that website, tennisnow.com, where I had, I mean, nobody was telling me what to write. I really got to be creative and uh, for for better or worse, got to write what I wanted to to write about. And I really, really enjoyed that.
0: You also did some instructional videos, which are an internet sensation, um, (laughs) one of which is almost 700,000 views. That's a completely different thing than covering the sport as a journalist. So you're, you're kind of doing two different things at the same time. Was it just, I'll do whatever anybody needs me to do?
1: Well, interestingly with, with tennis now, they had a pretty significant YouTube following. And I, that is where I first got my feet wet in front of the camera. And I always knew I love that. Like I, if if I didn't play tennis, I think I would have been in every play or drama that I could have been in, in school. I went to a great performing arts high school and never got to take advantage because I was always playing tennis, uh, but loved loved that sort of thing. My mom has pictures of me as a kid. I had a karaoke machine and I would interview my friends on it, uh, interviewing my grandparents always, always loved that sort of thing. And so I had the chance to be in front of a camera for the first time was terrible, um, to start. I'm, I know that those videos exist on the internet somewhere. Please, let's never dredge them up. Um.
0: (laughs) Uh, Editor's note for the listener. Check out the show notes for at least one or two of those instructional videos anyway.
1: Uh, yeah, no, but the the instruction videos are funny though, because my, my boss was like, hey, we need some instruction content. And I was like, well, I'm happy to give it a go. I, I, I really always loved teaching tennis. I knew I didn't want, I had seen what my dad does and, and knew that I probably didn't love it enough to do it for the next 40 years of my life, but enjoyed it. And so I, I gave it a shot. Definitely didn't think anybody would watch them, uh, which you can tell by the by the production value. I mean, a lot of them were done in one take. And he's like, do you want to see it before I post them? It, like, it's fine. Like, just, just put it up. <laughs> and now, of course, I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, someone could, you you know, and, and shout out to my video editor at the time, uh, Rico Edwards. But uh, yeah, it's, I am so happy now that I still have people who come up to me at tournaments and say, I watched your video and, and learned how to hit a one-hander or you know, I, I, I perfected my forehand because I watched your videos or I heard I had somebody actually that I know in tennis said she was over recently said she was over at her eighty nine year old father's house and heard a familiar voice coming out of the kitchen. And her dad (laughs) was watching my instruction videos. So it makes my heart happy to know that that they've been helpful. They I certainly as a perfectionist wish they could have been a little better in terms of production and delivery and all those things, but it makes me happy to know that they've been helpful.
0: You know, those came out around 2011 2012 so we're we're probably Another three, five years from from a pro saying, well, yeah, this is really how I honed my game was these, these videos with Blair way back in the day. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know, Pete. That could be your ultimate mic drop moment, I'm sure. So you're doing a mix of instructional videos and writing and then even some hosting of kind of newsy segments for Tennis Now. Eventually, you transition where you start working for the events themselves. How did that come about?
1: I, as you know well, uh, tennis is a really small world. And one of the things that I did when I was working at Tennis Now is I applied for credentials at Wimbledon. Didn't tell my boss, thought there was zero chance I would get approved. And that ended up being, I think maybe, the second or third tournament I had covered after Delray Beach and Houston, was Wimbledon, Um, credential, got approved for credentials. And I went to my boss and I said, hey, uh, didn't mention this to you, but applied for credentials and we got approved, you know, any chance, any chance we can make it happen. And to his credit, he let me go. And I met a ton of people there, kind of the same thing happened at the Australian Open at, at Roland Garros. I went to all three of those as a writer and met a lot of people and in tennis, everyone, sort of knows everyone and you were one of the big ones for me Pete working getting to know you working in Houston in that tiny little media room you were really one of the first you know media directors or people who were, was involved in multiple areas of the game that I met and it just is is sort of like a domino effect from there. And I uh, got to know Nick McCarvel, who a lot of people in tennis know. And, and that sort of led to my role as an on-court host when I tr- transitioned out of doing more of the writing. But it really was just getting to know people and building relationships. And when I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder if I could also do X, Y, or Z, you can usually reach out to one of those people who knows one of those people um it's also the curse of tennis as you know because there aren't a lot of openings there aren't a lot of positions but it's one of the great things as well
0: so you you get credential to these events for tennis now which you guys really have just been covering the sport remotely and putting together packages you know both written word but also some produced video pieces covering tennis what do you do once you get to these tournaments how do you start covering the event in person
1: uh, be, I used a flip cam uh, and I'm, you probably remember this. I, I have such, I don't know why this one particular interview comes to mind when I think about the early days, but I remember setting up the tripod, you know, by myself, the, the like old school, like I'm trying to think of the brand, one, one of those old school video camera brands flipped the little screen toward me tried to center me and Fernando Verdasco. That's that's the interview that I remember, is, is trying to center Fernando Verdasco and I on a brutally sunny day. I could barely see the screen. I'm just guessing. And so set us up and I'm like, hang on, stay right there. Don't move. Go behind the camera, press record, go in front of the camera and film the interview. And and that is, in terms of the video content, that is how bare bones it used to be. And also, as you know, my tech skills are poor to quite poor. So having to manage the invariable things that come up uh, technologically when you're doing all that yourself is not my favorite. But I am thankful for those days now because I was prepared for anything. Uh, and it was nice to be able to do that. And in those interviews, I could use those as written, you know, for written content as well. So it was a nice combination of the two.
0: You work the contacts and you start to be able to come over and work on the event side. What are the different facets uh, of your role? I mean, you your title, if you can call it, is host, writer, reporter. What does that translate to when you get hired to go work for a tournament?
1: Probably less reporting. Uh, and, and that is something, to be honest, that I miss a little bit. I, I do feel like in another life, maybe I, I would have uh, been a private investigator or an investigative journalist. Uh, and that was one of the really cool things about writing for a website like Tennis Now, because I wasn't getting interviews with Roger Federer. I was having to try to figure out what what could be the interesting story about the world number 72? Uh, and I really enjoyed that, and and got to have a lot of interesting conversations with players uh, because of that. So I definitely do less of that now. I'm, I would say I'm more sort of on the athletes' team. My my goal now, working for the tournament, working you know, if I'm working for an event, is to help that player's personality shine. And, and some players know that, that's, that we're on the same team. Some players are not quite as aware of that. Uh, and you certainly appreciate the players who sort of get the point like, this is, this is to make you look good. Uh, and that can, act, that can equal actual dollars for players, uh, which is, you know, can be such a frustration sometimes because you're thinking like, man, this could actually be helpful to you. Uh, I'm not doing this for my own health. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just trying to help the players and the athletes shine and and tell those stories and show people why they should care
0: one of the roles there is host and MC, which is announcing a player when they come into the stadium and sponsor reads on changeovers but then there's also the post-match interview and it's one thing you know we see post-match interviews on tv all the time hey talk about what you guys did when they went zone and how you guys counteracted that or something it's a lot of x's and o's um it's different, though, when you have that live stadium audience that you are simultaneously playing to. So how do you approach those post-match conversations? Uh,
1: correct. I, I, it's funny because I had to approach them a lot differently in Cincinnati and New York with no fans. That, you know, I didn't even maybe realize how much I was playing to the crowd until there was no crowd there to play to, but it is. It, it really is a different animal than a one-on-one that takes place five minutes afterward in the mix zone because you want the fans to be engaged and, and be having fun and be thinking, wow, I, I didn't know that about said player. So things like, you know, Thomas Burdick when he was wearing his H&M collection and had something, you know, bizarrely different on at every tournament, that's something that I might not ask if, if I'm doing a news story on him after the match, but that's something that, the fans engage with when he walks out of the court you're thinking what is this guy wearing uh so so those are the, those are sort of the little things that you can incorporate some of the more fun things um some of again the personality part is huge for me and of course you want to get the match question so first question or two talk you know is match involved uh you can you know whether it's a moment in the match or, or a bigger picture question but then to sort of narrow the scope a little bit and talk about the actual person by the end that's always sort of my goal
0: there has to be a bit of flexibility in that because match starts you don't know which of the two players you're going to talk to but i i would imagine that an interview after a 6-2 6-2 win is going to be a lot different than a 7-6 in the third win how much do you have to pivot on the fly and just be nimble because you have no idea what's going to unfold.
1: I'm I'm laughing because I had a recent experience with one of these. Uh, it was actually seven six in the fifth. Uh, my my birthday always always comes through during the U.S. Open, September fourth. Uh, it was you know people are so sweet. Happy birthday wishes. We that was the day that the manorino Zverev match. There was there was an issue with. Manorino being potentially exposed to COVID. That match gets pushed back like two hours. They end up playing. And then so the final match of the day, which was tsitsipas Chorich, gets put on much later than it should have been. And Tsitsipas is up two sets to love. I'm thinking, okay, great. He's a great interview. I always, I always enjoy talking to him. He's one of the more thoughtful players on tour. He always actually thinks about your question versus automatically giving you the, the rote answer. And so I'm thinking, okay, pretty standard, uh, relatively early night, considering how it looked earlier in the day. And then <laughs> we end up going to a fifth set tiebreak. break. And, and still at that point, I'm thinking, is it possible that Tsitsipas is going to, to lose us? I think he had six six match points. Uh, so talk about pivoting. I mean, the narrative of that match changed about 17 times by the end. Like, it, not only did the person who I thought was going to win change multiple times, but even if i was interviewing sirsipas in the fifth set that's a different interview than if i was you know talking to him after a straight sets win so so yes you, <laughs> you have to be ready for anything and my strategy i guess i like to have an idea of what i want to ask but as i've done this more and more i have really learned to listen to the responses in case there is an opportunity to go a different route. That's, you know, when I first started doing this, it was like, memorize your questions. Don't forget the first one. You know, don't engage with the player before the interview. Just don't forget what you're gonna ask. And the more I've done it, obviously, the more hopefully I've gotten better and, and more comfortable. And then you can really sort of let the interview take you wherever it wants to go.
0: And when you're in broadcasting, there's a producer in your ear and there's kind of a collaborative team pointing the ship in a particular direction. I get the sense, though, that when you're in this role, you're out there on an island and you're having to decide which direction to take the interview, maybe getting told to wrap it up, but that's probably all you're getting in terms of input from someone else. So how do you maintain some level-headedness with all that coming at you? Because that's a lot of inputs of monitoring the match and understanding the personality to then go out there and put yourself on that stage in front of... Television viewers globally, and usually, George Sittipas notwithstanding, an audience of several thousand people in the stands.
1: And that's an interesting question. And and believe me, I do get the wrap it up, tap on the shoulder. Uh, that I am no stranger uh, to to the little tap or somebody in my ear saying, "Last question," uh, because you know. And that is one thing. One of the best people in tennis to do the post match interview is Jim Courier, and a lot of people, you know, know him as as one of the best, if not the best. But he has a lot of latitude to just have a conversation out there. And that is not something that most post-match interviewers get. Um, depending on the tournament, sometimes I have more flexibility, but for the most part, especially when it's for TV, you're, you're pretty limited. Um, and so it's which questions are gonna pack the most punch? Which questions are gonna give you the most for your time? And I think, again, the more I've done it, the better I am at, at picking those. And a lot of times I'm like, ooh, I'm probably only, only going to get three, maybe four questions in, but I have like seven that I want to ask. And so I've gotten better at sort of culling those and figuring out which ones are going to give me the most information and, and reading the player too. Sometimes even after a player wins, they're not in a great mood. Uh, I mean, in fact, I've had two players walk off the court and decline the post-match interview after they've won the match. So it doesn't guarantee you that they're, that they're thrilled uh, and they may be tired. So for me, the pre-interview has become very important in choosing my questions as well. Before I get the five count, before we go live, I talk to the player, I you know, congratulate them. If there's, you know, if there's something to talk about, something obvious, I will, I'll ask them about it. Um, and if there's a question that I wanna ask that, that might be um, outside the box, a lot of times I'll, I'll ask them, say, is it okay if I ask you about this? And that has become really helpful.
0: I think one of the more memorable ones involves Indian Wells and a left-handed Canadian player Uh, that was putting him really on the spot. Did you talk to him beforehand? (laughs) Tell us how that came about.
1: Uh, I talked to him two days beforehand. He was, he was on my court for his previous win.
0: Dennis Shapovalov being the he in this.
1: Yes, yes. Sorry. The the left-handed Canadian uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy him on the court. He's fun to watch. Um, a lot of energy, uh, whether he's playing well or poorly, it goes either way. But he had just sort of come out with these these rap videos and some just more creative stuff. He was putting out his own creative content on his social media channels, and I asked about that as sort of a release. Um, you know, how helpful is it to have something outside of tennis that you enjoy? And I I mentioned the rapping and the crowd sort of started to murmur and he turned purple and I'm like, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to rap. But he was actually, I think he would have done it in that interview. Like, I think he was meant, to. he was like ready to put his skills on display and because even though. I could see like the adrenaline like immediately pump into his veins. There, I could also see that he like kind of wanted to do it. And so I but I also didn't want to be the person who, who puts a player on the spot that way because that's a real quick way to lose the trust of an interviewee is, is to put them on, make them feel uncomfortable. And so I said, after he talked about how much his, his creative side helps his tennis and helps him stay relaxed on the court, I said, well, how about we make a deal? if you end up back on this court again and you win, will you wrap for us? And he said, yep, I'll do it. The crowd is like, yeah. And I'm thinking no shot in a million years is he going to end up back on this court, much less win the match. Uh, Because I think his next opponent was Marin Cilic, who um, was seated 11th, 12th uh, at the time. And uh, lo and behold, the next day the order of play comes out that evening. Thinking, <laughs> no way, the, this opportunity could present itself. Uh, and you know, my producer, I, we're downloading like rap tracks to play over the speakers. She's like such a rule follower and is totally sweating this. She's like, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this. I'm like, it's fine. There are no cuss words. It's it's just the music. We'll be fine. Um, and yeah, he ends up playing great, wins the match. And I said before the interview, I said, "Are you good? Are you are you ready for this? Are you good?" And he said, "I'm feeling a little tight," <laughs> was his response. Um, but but he did not say no, uh, and I definitely gave him the opportunity to to back out. And uh, yeah, and I had told people, you know, so. Tennis TV, um, the tournament social media was out there because I said, hey, there's a possibility that this could happen. So we get through the interview. I gave the the crowd the backstory and said, you know, Dennis is gonna rap for us. Turns out Dennis had written an original rap just for the occasion. Uh, It took him a couple false starts, but he got out his phone, got the lyrics in hand, executes it flawlessly, crowd goes wild internet was less kind, Uh, but his, you know, his family and his coach, like, I have a picture from the the direction opposite. So it's looking at him with his um, team in the background. When he finished, they're like—I mean, you would have thought the kid just won Wimbledon, arms in the air. You know, his mom is high-fiving someone next to her. It, it was—it was a really cool moment. Uh, again, I—I I was afraid for years that I, his career started and ended with that rap because, as I said, uh, the internet uh, was was not as kind. But, but yeah, it ended up being a really, a really neat moment. And listen, he's, he's now, he has two tracks now, two official tracks. He's like an actual rapper now. So I feel much better.
0: You launched him. You, you should get some, <laughs> you know, liner notes in the album. There you better you get a shout out there. Hosting can also involve at a lot of these tournaments, corporate gigs, for lack of a better phrase, you know, um, xyz company sponsors the tournament they get to bring out their clients or their employees and they may have a player come or a television commentator come and and appear sign some autographs but often that is hosted and that's another piece of your work your vast portfolio but that's a another completely different set of circumstances so what are those events usually like for you in that host role
1: uh this this podcast is living up to its name, Pete. No one has ever asked me about <laughs> sponsored appearances, but it is, like it is such a, it's a different ball game. Uh, you are wanting, you you have a room full of people who may know nothing. Some might be tennis fanatics, some might be there for the food, you have no idea the, the knowledge base of, of the crowd that you're speaking to. It's it's kind of like an entertainment thing. So yes, you can get some of the nuts and bolts off the bat, but if you have 15 minutes to talk to a player in front of a room full of, you know, people who work for the bank down the street, you have to be pretty creative with, with the avenues that you choose in terms of the interview. Um, so again, that's where relationships with the players really come in handy because if you know them a little bit better maybe you can go a little bit more off the beaten path you can talk more big picture usually we open it up to questions you have to be prepared when there's dead silence when you say any questions? Does anyone have any questions? And it's crickets. And then you're like, okay, let me, let me ask a couple more. Uh, So you have to be prepared in in those situations as well. You can say, we're going to do five minutes of audience questions. You may have 30 seconds of audience questions and you better have something else to ask uh, whichever player, or, you know, if you're doing a TV personality is joining you that day. Uh, But I will say there have been times where I've really learned things about a player in that case. And sometimes I've, th- I've thought to myself, ooh, this player is not going to be great in this... Because you're in a small, tight room usually. There's no microphone a lot of times. Uh, Andre Rublev was a great example of that last summer in Cincinnati. He had just beaten Roger Federer. He's quiet. Um, I thought he was shy. I've, I've since gotten to know him a little bit better. He dazzled that audience in, in the suite, telling stories about how you know, his father and grandfather are boxers, his mom played tennis, his dad and grandpa didn't want him to play tennis because that was a girl sport. I was like, wow, okay, we're like, we're going in deep. So you just never know, like, you just have to be ready to roll with the punches, ready for anything.
0: Another facet of your work is on social media. And you've done content posting and, and being active as, you know, supplying that endless engine with, with content. But you also then get involved with more player interviews for social content and that's completely different than all the other interviews we've already talked about Mm -hmm. there are kind of two pieces to it one is the just profile interview where you speak to a player about the player and you know one of the ones that um did quite well i think in terms of viewership maybe not rivaling your instructional videos was one you did with roger Federer at the western southern open um, on a facebook live but then there are the ones where, for lack of a better word, they're kitschy. You're you're trying to have some fun. What is that process from idea generation to getting the buy-in? Because mm-hmm. let's be honest, you're asking some ridiculous stuff.
1: Uh, yes. And, and listen, for all the ridiculous things you've heard me ask, there are hundreds of ridiculous things that have not made the cut. But... I, I, you just have to sort of throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And sticking can mean getting approved by the tournament, by the tours, getting a yes from the player. There are so many things that have to line up to actually, once you have an idea, to actually execute said idea. But, you know, Pete, you know as well as anyone, on social media, if you don't capture the attention right off the bat – or give people a reason to watch for the 90 seconds, people are, are continue scrolling. So you really don't have a lot of time to, it's it can't be a slow burn to the point. You have to get to the point right away. Um, and listen, some things have been looking back, I'm like, wow, that worked out better than I thought. And some things have, you know, I've started them and been like this, you know, this isn't, this probably isn't going to work. Like maybe we need to ax it. Uh, and I don't know, Pete, if we're talking examples, the, the one that sticks Please. out when I think about this is last year in Houston. And again, to, to paint the picture, the the Houston interview area is actually in the media room. So every every member of the media who's working the tournament is there to listen to whatever interview with a player happens. And I had uh, I was working with the great Heather Crowley, who is who is a great social media mind in tennis and beyond. Uh, she had the idea to do a clay Rorschach test. Uh, so of course that tournament is red clay. And so I I was like, oh my gosh, like we have to actually make this authentic. So we're out there like collecting clay off the sides of the court so that we can make our own images. I don't know what you want to call them on a piece of white paper. Our photographer shot them. We, you know, had these pieces of paper to give to the player and they were supposed to tell us what they saw. And I believe it was interview number one or two, maybe the second one. I hand one of those sheets to Jeremy Chardy, the Frenchman, and he looks at it and he goes, I see two frogs ebbing six. <laughs> and I, I mean, you can hear me in the back of the clip, like the, the clip still lives. I, I laughed because that's what I do in those situations, but also was like, and this is how an idea dies. <laughs> this, is, this is when you lay it to rest. Um, uh, yeah. And sometimes it just doesn't work out how, how you hope. And sometimes it's great. But that was a moment where I said to Heather afterward, I was like, I don't, I don't think this is gonna work (laughs) because on the on the flip side you have players who are like wait what i have to i have to look at this and like tell you what i see so there then there's the other side like players who just don't get it um so we we couldn't find the happy medium on that particular idea but it was good times
0: how much of the social content is tennis related and how much is off the charts looking at images and trying to sea frogs for example
1: <laughs> a lot of the social content that i do is is probably more unusual um i think of in cincinnati doing the talking about their childhood the players different things from their childhood which was actually really fun and interesting and, and the players really got into it um i mean we drove golf carts in delray beach for a video game video we i mean i did rodeo lessons with feliciano lopez i mean the list the the list goes on uh i had you know another fernando verdasco story another houston story actually when i was back in the camcorder days where I had, I had the guys, I had three lines, you know, I love apple pie, barbecue, and football, and they had to try to deliver them in a Texas accent. And I, of course, found a prop, because I love a good prop. I think nobody would actually wear said prop, a cowboy hat, but they all wore the cowboy hat, and I have Fernando Verdasco you know, saying, you know, quiet, because again, same media room where everybody can hear what's happening, and he's telling everyone, quiet, I, I'm trying to act. And, and, you know, and he delivers it in his best Texas accent. So again, I would say the majority of that sort of content is probably not tennis specific.
0: That video will also be in the show notes, credentialsonly.com, if you want a good laugh. Um, You you touched on it. There is then the approval process and and you got to go sell these concepts And you said that for, you know, everyone that gets done, there's probably hundreds that don't. What's it like to have to go sell that? And who are the toughest sells? I
1: think there are a lot of, a lot of tough sells. (laughs) Uh, I, I think, and that's why it's good, you know, the longer you're in any industry, you have more allies. You have people who trust you because if, and this is not to toot my own horn, but just because I know people in the tennis world and people have seen some of the work that I've done, I can go to them with an idea that if it were coming from someone they had never seen before, it might not even get past the front door. And and I'm thankful, so thankful for the people who have trusted me to do some, some of those unusual things uh, with players, you are one, Pete. Uh, no, so I, I think, Oh, tours. I think the tours are always tough because there's the balance of they want to showcase their player well. They don't want their player to be upset with them. Uh, you know, I feel for the tour reps who are on site at tournaments. That is a really difficult job. Uh, and I don't blame them when I come to them and say, here's what I'd like to do it's more work for them to say yes to me. And so again, I really appreciate the people who, who trust me to know that this is going to showcase, this is your tour and I'm going to showcase your players in a way people maybe haven't seen before. And so it's just building, building that trust uh, so that people let you be creative.
0: You mentioned some of the tournaments that you work at and I want to get into the actual nuts and bolts of kind of your work life and, and how you've build out your portfolio. But I would imagine that you kind of have to tailor what you're doing to each tournament, because it's not going to be one size fits all. And that's whether it's the corporate, the on-court, or the social, each probably has their own flavor. How do you figure that out and modify what you're doing to fit that?
1: Ooh, that's that's a very good question. Uh, I mean, the, the events that I've done range from, you know, Delray Beach where sort of anything goes. Uh, they're like, hey, yeah, cool. That sounds new and different, you know, go for it, which which I appreciate, certainly appreciate that. But that's very much the feel of the entire tournament. It's like South Florida, you know, come in your tank top and cutoffs and, and you know, put on your sunscreen and sit in the stands. Uh, and then you have a tournament like Houston, which is much different. It's a country club crowd. Uh, a lot of those people might not even follow the tournament on social media. We hope that they do, but they might not. Uh, and then you have Indian Wells, who is, is maybe has more planning. There's more planning involved in Indian Wells. So you have the tournaments that have thought of a strategy year in advance. And so it's hard to sort of break in uh, with those sorts of tournaments because they are already have this this detailed Excel sheet on what exactly is going to happen. So again, it's, it's getting the feel. I think anytime you can tie into the tournament itself, whether it's the geographically, something on site, something specifically that has happened there, a historic moment, uh, something you can tie into the people who come watch Uh, I mean, in Houston, there are a lot of white pants, high heels, big hats. I mean, it's the Kentucky Derby of tennis. I mentioned sort of the look in Delray Beach. Wimbledon is different from the U.S. Open, is different from the the finals. So if you can tie it into something specific with the fans, that's helpful too. So I think it's just using your eyes, really. Using your eyes, what are the things that I have to work with that relate specifically to this tournament? And that's usually a good starting point.
0: So we've kind of set up the work that you're doing, how do you then make this into a living? How do you build out your calendar? You've talked about knowing the people in the in the networking within tenants, but you still have to go through the exercise of building out the calendar and piecing it together to become a full portfolio.
1: Yes, and that's, that's more challenging for me, um, than it would be otherwise, just because I have two small children and a husband. Um, and thankfully he has a job. So it, there is, you know, being a freelancer is tough and it's nice to sort of know that there's another income in, in the household because you just, I mean, who knows, you could have a, a, a pandemic come along and, and thing, <laughs> things could really shift. Um, but I, you know, I know that the, tur- the tournaments that I wanna do and, and in terms of the time that I can be away, and if I really want to shoot for something, it's finding the person I know who knows someone there and, and going for it. There's also the financial aspect. Not every tournament has the same budget, and when being away for me means being away from my kids, perhaps the, the dollar amount on, on what makes a tournament worth it is a little bit higher and also paying for childcare, that also changes things. And so, you know, the financial aspect has become probably more important to me over time uh, and, and just what a tournament is able to do in that department. But I also look for tournaments who are willing to let me be creative. Um, And, and there have been a couple of times where I've arrived at, you know, a tournament, maybe I've done it for the first time and I've been like, I'm not sure we like get each other. (laughs) I'm not not sure the vibe is exactly the same here. Uh, So, and some, some of that is trial and error and, and you move on, you add it, add it to your resume and get through that challenge and you find the ones where you really feel like you can do what you do in a comfortable atmosphere.
0: Regardless of your role at a particular tournament, you are traveling, you're away from home, you work long hours, You know, it's usually 11 a.m. till 11 p.m. or later, um, and for day after day after day. Your job is to be able to speak and or write coherently, (laughs) which can be hard for some people on eight hours of sleep. How do you keep yourself fresh all the way through long strings of tournaments with all those factors?
1: Man, that this might be the toughest question you've asked today, Pete. I don't know. That's that's a I you know the the one good thing about a tournament week and, and for a normal one week tournament it's about ten days of work you know including your travel days you don't have time to think about it. I, I the the times that I have actually struggled most have been a couple years ago. I maybe twenty sixteen I think so maybe more than a couple. I was working. Uh, I was doing social media for Roland Garros and they said we're going to get we're each going to get 2 days off each and i was like what <laughs> that's not that's not normal i actually found that harder i would have rather worked straight through because once you stop that's when you start thinking about how exhausted you are and it's you know it's it's like being at a red light and turning your car all the way off I just would rather keep it running that for me, that is helpful. It's just don't think about it, set your alarms, drink coffee, which has become a new practice of mine or, or diet Coke as it were. And, uh, and, and just grind. Um, but it's, it's tennis is great also in that way. Cause when it's over, it's over and I can come home and, and, you know, spend a few weeks with my kids before the next thing. So it, there are pluses and minuses
0: you have the work involved in finding the work, but then you have to do all the back end stuff. And we talked about the travel. And so there's the receipts and all that as a freelancer, accounting becomes a completely different thing because you're not getting a lovely Mm. statement every couple of weeks that has the taxes taken out and everything. So how do you manage that accounting piece of it of really just running yourself as a business when you're a freelancer?
1: I wish I were slightly more organized. I, I am personally very organized. Like my my house looks clean. I, I like to think I am personally like decently well put together, but it, when it comes to making, you know, getting that receipt that I, in a rush stuffed in like the bottom of my purse and like the eighth pocket in there, I, I sometimes not the greatest at that. I have since developed a system, I was. I'm very lucky to have a father-in-law who's a CPA. Uh, that's that's a nice a nice relative to have who can sort of hash that out. And again, if I were on my own, it would probably be this. It would be much more complicated in terms of how I budget and how much do I how how many jobs do I need to get this year versus how many jobs do I want to do. Uh, and I'm fortunate that my my limit is really dictated by my time away from home versus the money um but again i have sort of developed my system of folders in my computer i'm not as great as as i wish i were though and it really is you know when my friends are like oh you're home like let's hang out Like I, There are loose ends, loose ends. We got to do invoices. You have to do, when you're a freelancer, you better be thanking people. You better be saying, I can't wait to see you next year. If you met someone at that tournament who might work at another tournament, you need to follow up with them and say, it was great to talk to you and all the, there are so many loose ends. I mean, I'm still doing, working on things from the US Open that ended I mean, almost a month ago, I, I'm still trying to get clips from there and, and photos for my personal portfolio. It just, <laughs> there's a lot of extra stuff.
0: And personal portfolio is another good thing. And, and again, in the show notes, I'll link to your website, but you, you have to be able to showcase yourself out there and really sell yourself, brag about yourself to try to line up that next job, which isn 't necessarily the most comfortable thing for a lot of people, and I know you're smiling because I know you feel that way about it yourself.
1: I hate it with a passion. Uh, I, <laughs> I was just emailing some because it's asking you know to a lot of times to get the assets to get a clip of an interview or to get a photo that somebody saw come through the photo wire who works for the USTA, but he's not allowed to get it himself because that would you know trip the <laughs> I don't know what the USDA system is, but you know, so it's, you have to go up the ladder and I hate to bug people about that sort of thing. Um, and I really do try to, when I can, like, if it involves like cutting stuff for me or spending other people's time, I pay people because it just like, and I, and I know some people would say, why, I mean, they're, they're your friend, they're doing a favor for you, but I, it just makes me so uncomfortable to think that they are doing something that requires, you know, cutting something for me um somebody in your office is actually doing that for me right now Pete. and I when I realized that that uh, she had gotten involved in getting these clips I mean it really makes me sweat I cannot stand it but it is it's it is part of it like I don't even like watching my my demo like having to refresh my demo reel I would I will find like can I clean the bathroom can I vacuum <laughs> Like, you know, the living room, uh, can I pull a few teeth? I just, I don't like, for me, once I write something, you know, if if it's written, once it's in, you know, tennis magazine or something like that, I don't ever look at it again. That's just me. Some people are probably much better at this. It's just not my, not my favorite thing to do, but you you have, you can't not, you have to do it. And there's the website stuff. There's the social media stuff. And it's just finding a balance. I just never want anyone to be like, oh my gosh, like we get it. You work in tennis. (laughs) Um, And and it's just trying to find the balance where you can have it out there, but not be annoying. I don't know that I found it.
0: You talked about having a system um, when it comes to so much of the, the work that you do. Do you have a system for the knowledge that you come across? Because knowing that a player writes raps or likes fashion or, you know, has lost six in a row to a particular opponent. There's so many little bits of data that are valuable. Mm -hmm. Is that all in your head? Do you have an intricate filing system for that as well? What's the secret sauce to keeping all that straight to, to really help you do your job better? I mean, it's kind of important stuff.
1: Yes, there is no intricate filing system for that. Um, I will say I usually have a running document during a tournament of, I I usually type out the post-match interview questions that I think I might want to ask. I don't bring that with me onto the court, I just like to have it on paper. I'm a visual learner, so I just like to sort of see it on paper and think about the exact way I want to phrase it, especially if it's a question that I may need to be more delicate in in phrasing Um, and so I sort of keep a running document uh, for for each tournament that I do so I have an idea of of what I've asked whom and if if a question didn't make the cut if say that person I ended up in Cincinnati at the US Open I ended up interviewing Victoria Azarenka five times in the course in the span of of like not even two weeks And you better be. She actually said to me before our fifth interview, "She's like, you got some new questions for me today." (laughs) Um, So in in those situations, you really have to dig deep, um, especially if you want to ask questions of substance. Because I do as much as I like to have fun with the players. If there is an interesting statistical bit or a psychological bit, I do like to to dive deep if I have the opportunity. So. (laughs) <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the daily media notes the tours that helps a whole lot with that.
0: All right, I'm going to ask you some quick hit questions here. Uh, your favorite players to talk to post match?
1: I mean, so post match, we're just specifically talking post match.
0: We are because we'll ask about the other stuff in a second. Okay. Stay tuned.
1: Uh, <laughs> I. I do love Victoria Azarenka. She she thinks about the answers. So does Steph Sitsipas. Uh Alexander Zverev is a good post match interview. Um, I'm trying to think of of some others. There are a lot. Grigor Dimitrov. Sometimes he's one that I've been tapped on the shoulder a few times. He always, he he just is very warm, uh, and I think his warmth, even if he's not saying anything fantastic, he really it's like he actually really cares about giving a good answer and I really think that that is conveyed to the fans whether they're in the stadium or watching on TV. Serena Williams in a massive stadium where she has just won and everybody's cheering for her, that's that's a real fun interview. I got to do that for the first time this year and and listen, Serena would probably be the first one to tell you she's not always She's not always a bowl of, bowl of laughs in, in terms of the interviews, but in, in that setting, man, when the crowd, when you can't even hear, when you can barely hear the player because the crowd is cheering so loud, that is that is a very, very cool experience. Um, so yeah, those are some of my favorites. Um, gosh, I feel like there are I feel like there are more. Naomi Osaka, I always love interviewing. She scares me to death going into the interview, but I, I always love interviewing her because... Again, you, you learn to appreciate the players who actually hear your question. There are a lot of players who, who may hear the last three words and give you the answer that, they, that you've heard 72 times before. Um, and I appreciate the fact that Naomi actually listens and will think about it and give you an interesting answer to your question. You also better be ready with your next question because it might be one word. And then you may need to, <laughs> to ask your next one. So, yeah, there are a lot of good ones out there
0: is there a player and this doesn't have to be this generation but is there a player who you've not been able to interview but you would like to mm. or would like to have had the opportunity
1: you know it's funny i have crossed a lot of my player my my former player check boxes during quarantine i was i was fortunate enough to do some work for the hall of fame and got to talk to Marat Safin, um, that was sort of a full circle moment for me because he was sort of like, I was a teenager. He was like, you know, do, doing what he did when he was 1920. Um, you know, uh, he was like, he was kind of like rock star status at that point. So that was cool. I mean, Andy Roddick is another one. I had the chance, Kim Clijsters, uh, and those are people like, those are sort of full circle moments for me. I'm like, this is who I sat on the couch watching as a kid. Um, so I know there there have got to be answers to this. Oh, I will say there is one. There's one that I almost had the chance to do, a couple, um, that, that ended up not happening for a number of reasons. But uh, Bjorn Borg, I think I would be interested mm. to talk to. Jimmy Connors is another one I'd be interested to talk to. And I would love to do a sit down with John McEnroe. We've had some special times on the court, and I would be interested to talk to him in a one-on-one sit down setting.
0: When it comes to the more fun social pieces, who are your favorites for that?
1: Going through my, my (laughs) mental Rolodex Uh, again, Steph always brings it. Steph sits a puss. One that's sort of off the beaten path, Diego Schwartzman. He is the smiliest it doesn't even really matter what he's saying because he just has such a, a grin on his face. Andy Murray, you—if I could center an entire social media strategy around Andy Murray, I would. If if somebody could pay him the big bucks to be like, I am your social plan, we would probably you know break the bank in terms of views. So uh, <laughs> he's fantastic. There are a lot. There are a lot of of really really good ones out there. I'm trying to think about the U.S. Open. I think Maria Sakkari is a great young player. I, I enjoy her. Again, lots of smiling, which is fun. Madison Keys uh, is always really open.
0: And Maria gives you hair tips, which is good.
1: <laughs> yes, she, she is. I, I'll never forget it. She had just lost a match. We had had many talks about her tight hair buns, and uh, it started on social media, bled into an interview, and she had just lost a brutal three-setter, and we ended up in the same elevator in Cincinnati, and she goes, your hair's not in a bun today, (laughs) and I said, no, it's not, (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, there are some really endearing players. I find Nick Kyrios to actually be game for a lot of things, and I find him to be actually a really good interview when you're sort of in that one-on-one off-court setting so there's some great ones
0: and my last question is about the players because you mentioned having the trust is very important but i also feel like that that relationship is something that carries a lot of legs for you going tournament to tournament because you have that rapport Mm -hmm. and it really probably serves you for all interested parties that you now are kind of ingrained in the tennis world and it, it has to open doors for you, but also has to be a two way street. Is that how you would view it or how would you describe it?
1: Yes. You know, one thing that I've, I've maybe been burned, I, it felt like a, a burn to me. I, I don't think somebody looking on the outside would have categorized it that way, but I, some, with some players, my relationship with them is not cumulative And it's very easy to go into a a player relationship thinking we had such a great sit down two weeks ago in whatever tournament. And you think, because this is how it works in real life, that the next time you see them, you're gonna sort of build on that. And there are certain players where that is not the case. It is literally every day is a new mood, a new day. Uh, You have to have maybe a different approach. And then there are some players like Francis Tiafo, who is, you know, he's, he's a perfect example of someone who, when we see each other, we give each other a big hug. I actually had to say in, in New York, I'm like, Francis, you, you can't, we can't, you can't do that. Like it can't, like you can't even get like near me for a side hug. Uh, but, but you do it. It's so it's nice. You have, I have sort of the spectrum and I have players who I would think I'm closer to the Francis end of the spectrum or should be, but you just, I just may never get there with them. There are some players who rightfully so in a lot of cases just sort of have the media barrier up and you're never getting past that Uh, you can try i'll never stop trying but uh, for for a lot of players you're just not not going to to get that
0: i close every episode of credentials only with the set pieces these are half dozen questions for all of the people who are kind enough to be my guests so thank you for joining me for this and thank you now for indulging me on these six questions starting with podcasts or newsletters what's your kind of using to stay up to date
1: well pete credentials only is is going to be it's on my list as is just about every podcast you should see my podcast podcast screen on my phone because it's it's a lot of real great content, but I just don't have a lot of uninterrupted time, <laughs> and so I may get ten minutes here, or ten minutes there. I, NCR is is one one of the first ones I started listening to. Beyond the Baseline with John Wertheim, uh, Body Serve has done some good historic work. Uh, I the Sports Illustrated Media podcast, and I do the one thing that I do make it a point to listen to um, are sermons. A lot of Tim Keller, a lot of Matt Chandler. Um, those, are, those are my two, um, I don't know if you would say favorite pastors, but two of the people that I listen to a lot. And so Twitter, I would say, is sort of my newsletter. The little magnifying glass on Twitter. Just because I, am, I don't have a lot of large chunks of time to be like, okay, let me read. I think if I had newsletters coming into my inbox I, I, would just, oh, I would just be like, huh, ha, I, I need to do it. I need to sit down. Like, I need to make sure I know what's happening. Twitter has become an easier way for me to consume news because I can look at it when I have five minutes to look at it. Um, and you get those bits and pieces.
0: That's a perfect segue. The most valuable files, the people, the posts, you don't want to miss what that person has said.
1: I, as a, a GIF or GIF lover, depending on your flavor. I love double fault 28. Um, and really, I, I love that he's back. He was, he was pulled down for (laughs) 24 hours or so, but, but I think he got like 31 million impressions in, in a, like a relatively short period of time. And those are people who might not see tennis otherwise. So I'm very passionate about that. Love what he does. Um, Courtney Nguyen and, and by association WTA insider, Ben Rothenberg uh, always has information uh, Jose Morgado Brett McCormick from sports business journal uh, and then there are a few that just make me laugh who talk tennis and just make me chuckle hurley tennis uh, white line fervor there 's another account hot dog sixty nine sixty nine Listen, uh, handle notwithstanding, he has a lot of great Challenger Tour content, so he keeps me sort of apprised of what's going on in, in that area of the world. So there are a lot
0: of good ones. A couple of books you recommend for people to read.
1: I wish I could read more for fun um when i do it's it is not anything serious it's you know probably whatever the top thriller is but one of my favorite books um that's just on my bookshelf that i have had time to read i love consider the lobster uh david foster wallace it's a collection of his essays and there are actually a couple of tennis essays in there i had no idea he was a tennis player until i read that and i was like oh wow this is like a personal essay on tennis like when when you know tennis is tennis is alive. Tennis is <laughs> over into my my non-tennis life. Um So consider the lobster. Love that. Donald Miller, um, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. I love that book. And on my list, I really want to read Louisa Thomas's new book called Losers, talking about sort of the the psychology of losing and and talking to people who have lost and and what that means. I find that whole aspect fascinating. And so I'd really love, I need to make time to read that book.
0: What are you streaming?
1: Nothing good, Pete. Um, I, (laughs) I like the like crime stuff. I watched, I watched the most horrific thing on Netflix the other night. It's like the murder next door, or the great American murder or something like that. I'm like, that, that one was even like too much for me, but I love like the Datelines, um, any of the real life mystery stuff. I don't get to watch a ton of TV. And so when I do, I like for it to sort of, I don't know if you can call that escapist. If I'm escaping to murder shows, that's probably not a good sign. But, uh, but I love, I love a lot of those real crime, true crime shows.
0: What's your favorite sports memory as a kid?
1: 18th birthday, I flew to New York. That's where my dad was a tennis pro in the summers when I was growing up. Uh, But I always had to come back to Florida to start school, so I was never there for the US Open. And for my 18th birthday, that was my present. I got to fly back to New York, because my dad stayed until after Labor Day um, when when the club up there closed down. And some friends of ours got us tickets, front row, Arthur Ashe Stadium, watching Max Mierney and Gustavo Curtin, and it. Ended up being 7 6 in the fifth. I don't even remember. There were two, it was a night session. There was a match before it. I have zero recollection of of what that match was. But we were not a ton of people stayed. And so they let everyone come down into the lower bowl. You had all the Brazilians chanting flags. I was firmly in Camp Mirny. Uh, absolutely loved it, and, and talk about Full Circle, got to interview Max for the first time last year at the ATP finals because he retired, officially retired last year. And I had to, I had to avoid, I, I never feel like a fangirl, like, like almost never. But at that moment I was like, oh my gosh, like 18 year old me is freaking out <laughs> right now interviewing Max. So uh, no, absolutely, it was a memory with my dad. Just it was just the best, and to be front row in Ash, it's that is an experience in itself.
0: Do you keep your credentials, and if so, where is that collection?
1: I do. And the I, collection is a strong word because there's a hanger in my closet that they just get <laughs> piled on and piled on. I'm actually a little concerned about the, uh, this, the structural integrity of the post that it's hanging on because the, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty full hanger, thankfully. But yes, I do. And, and probably like everyone who keeps them, you inspired me, I will say, Pete, with your recent organizing uh, journey. But I like to think that one day I'll do something cool with them, <laughs> other than look at them now and then think, oh, my gosh, how did I use that as a as a uh, headshot? What was I thinking? <laughs> um, so maybe one day I'll do something with them.
0: There is something haunting about all the headshots that you see when you go back over the years, that's for sure. Claire, <laughs> thank you for answering questions, you're usually asking them. So thank you for taking the time to answer them on Credentials Only. Really appreciate all the insights into what you do, but also how you go about doing it. So thanks so much for the time.
1: Thank you, Pete. You're such a pro, I tell you all the time. Just the best, appreciate
0: it. Oh, go on. (laughs) If you haven't already done so, get over to credentialsonly.com, check out the show notes, a ton of videos to watch the pieces and interviews that Blair talks about in this episode really complements what we discussed. While you're there, drop us your email address so we can be sliding into your inbox whenever we have a new episode to share, and please take a moment to leave a rating and review on your favorite site for podcasts. A big thanks to Blair for taking the time with us for this episode and to Mike Shay for always editing credentials only, which is a Holter Media production.